Thank you, Shoko and Yannicka, for that reminder of God's tapestry of grace. And for those out there that couldn't resist to join in on that final little hymn there and offered your accompanying music or voices. Have kind of an <clears throat> unusual sermon title this morning. I don't usually get that clever. Uh, but eight ball corner pocket fulfillment of prophecy. And uh, Corky comes in and he reads the t- sermon title. You're not in trouble, Corky. It's all right. He gave me that high school look or that grade school look like, uh-oh, teacher, what I do now. But no, he came in and he read it, eight ball corner pocket. He said, yeah, whenever I, whenever I see that word eight ball, it reminds me of the ball family. And I thought, okay, here we go. But actually, this is a true story um, in Nottaway County. And I don't know them, and I hope maybe if you do, uh, understand that you don't want to get on the wrong side, so don't tell them about this. But anyway, um, the Ball family, that was their name, and they were kind of in and out of the court system, if you know what I mean. That was their reputation. But one of the kids or the grandkids' name was Roland, Roland Ball. And, uh, and his middle name was Eight. Did I get that? Roland Eight Ball. That was his name, Roland Eight Ball. So whatever name your parents gave you this morning, be grateful for that, that it wasn't Roland Eight Ball. True story right here in Nottaway County. But um, hopefully the sermon won't be quite that crazy. We won't get off track. But what does Eight Ball Corner Pocket have to do with prophecy? Well, when it comes to playing pool, the best players are good enough to where they can call their shots, not just one or two. But if you're really, really good in pool, you can actually look at the table, uh, analyze what's there, what you have to work with, and call your shots. I've really never been much of a pool player. I played, we never had a pool table growing up. We had ping pong table for a little while, but... So I'm not that good. I don't call my shots at all. Wouldn't dare do that um, unless I had to. But uh, I'll call my shot if it just so happens to, to where everything's lined up perfectly and you practically can't miss. Then I might, you know, call my shay. I'm going to put it right in that pocket. But other than that, I stay away from it. But people that are really good can call every shot. Now, I don't know that such a person exists, but if they did exist, would you be impressed If I could introduce you to a person that has a reputation for being able to call every shot that they ever played in pool. From as long as anybody could ever remember, if I pulled witnesses up here and this person said, yeah, I remember years ago when they were first getting started. I've never seen this person not call a shot and make it. Now, that would be pretty impressive. And that person would have to be able to really analyze the table. They'd have to have to have tremendous skill and foresight They'd have to have mastery of the table. They'd they'd have to know what kind of reaction was going to cause an effect, you know, chain reaction. What would this cause and where's that ball going to go? They would just have to have tremendous ability and tremendous skill. And I think we would all be impressed if such a person existed. I don't know if they do or not. I doubt it. Um, If they could sink every ball. The. Pool that I've played usually, uh, I don't know what you call it because I'm not a pool player, but I guess maybe you call it eight ball or something. But when I play, you, you pick after the break, 
uh, you're either solids or stripes. That's as complicated as I get. But the last shot needs to be called. You don't have to call the other ones. You just have to hit your color in. Last shot has to be called. You have to call the eight ball. What pocket you're going to put it in in order to win and you can't scratch. And if you, maybe you're winning the entire game, but if you scratch or you miscall that one shot, it's over. You have lost the game. Whether your opponent has even had an opportunity to shoot or not. Well, I think what this has to do with prophecy is there's a little bit of a parallel here in in the sense of the kind of prophecies that Matthew is going to share with us this morning. And we'll be in Matthew chapter 2 and we'll read that very shortly. But there are Old Testament promises. In other words, God has called the shots, if you will, before Christ ever was born into this world. Prophecy, God foretold, he predicted what was going to happen very, very precisely and the way it was going to happen. And in some occasions, when it was going to happen. And Matthew's message is that Jesus is the king and he's showing us these prophecies as more credentials, if you will, more evidence or credentials that he really is the one. This Jesus that's been born into the world, he really is the one that is the king of all. So that's what we're going to we're going to look at this for the next two sermons. Um, we'll, co- we'll cover two of the prophecies this morning and then the other two next week. <clears throat> but from the very beginning, that's what Matthew's been hammering. Jesus is the king. That's the message of this gospel. He is the king and he has a kingdom. And because he has a kingdom, he has laws and ordinances. He has a specific way he is going to and is running his kingdom. And he has subjects in his kingdom. And we learn on the very first sermon that he also has an outpost to his kingdom. And that's the church. That's you and I. We are, we are earth's outpost for this kingdom that exists everywhere, the reign and rule of Christ. And that's one of the purposes that we serve as believers. And that's how we serve the king. But he is the rightful king. And Matthew went to pains to show us through the genealogy. If you follow Jesus's birth and ancestors, it leads right to the royal line of David. And if you follow it in the other direction, of course, it leads to God. So he is Jesus, the man and Jesus, God. And we also saw that he is king by the fact that. That he circumvented, if you will, the sin that is passed down to man in every generation since our very first ancestors, Adam and Eve, through the virgin birth. And then he substantiated the fact that he is a rightful king when the kingmakers from the east, the Magi, came and visited him and desired to worship him as king and bear their gifts to him. And then also, in a sense... He showed that Jesus was king by the hostility that Herod offered because Herod believed this enough to send him into a tirade, uh, to to send him into. um, He was very threatened. He was very troubled by the fact that these kingmakers from the east, the wise men, the magi are looking for the king of the Jews. And he's like in, in his heart, he's saying, wait a minute, I am the rightful king of the Jews. And he wants to get rid of any threat. So all of these things that Matthew is bringing out very strategically to buttress his main point of these Gospels. And that is that Jesus is 
the rightful king. He's the perfect fit. We're going to see this in these prophecies. We're going to look at Micah. Micah 5.2. Micah 5.2 says that the king has to be born in Bethlehem. That's where we're headed. And from Bethlehem, Jesus came. Then Hosea prophesied about uh, coming out of Egypt, God calling his son out of Egypt. And that's what we're going to read about this morning, how God called his son out of Egypt. A little bit later, we're going to look at the weeping prophet, Jeremiah. And the weeping prophet uh, predicted that there will be weeping and, re- and wailing in Ramah. And we find this. And it's very interesting, the background. We won't, we won't look into that till next week. But this prophecy of Jeremiah is very, very powerful, very interesting um, at what this means. The, the impact of the weeping and wailing that took place because of Herod slaying the babies in the days of Jesus. There, the, the Jewish people would understand this and it's uh, tremendous significance in this prophecy. So you can anticipate that. And then lastly, the prophets of old said that he would be called a Nazarene from Nazareth. And that's also where Jesus is from. Originally, his parents are from there and then they make their way back there. We'll find all of this in our passage this morning. So no matter what direction you look at it, Jesus is the rightful king. He deserves to be uh, worshipped in this way. And the challenge, I think, in Matthew is always, is Jesus your king? Matthew goes to great strides to show us he is the real king. Is he your king? And that's the question that we all have to answer this morning. Have we humbled our hearts and surrendered to this king? The evidence will continue to mount. I hope if you do not answer that question, yes, Jesus is my king this morning, that the power of God's spirit and the power of God's word will work in your heart and mind and draw you to the Father, and draw you to King Jesus. But like a master pool player, if you will, that has to kind of be able to read the table and and rule the table, be the master of the table, call every shot, in order for God to fulfill the prophecies that were made hundreds of years in advance, He has to be able to master the universe. He has to be able to master people and events and history and even write history. And that's what we find in prophecy. Because if you miss one, just like if you play eight ball and you miss that final shot, it's, it's gone. You lost the game. If one prophecy is not fulfilled, then there's a flaw in God. And he's right most of the time. He, he gets it right most of the time, but not all the time. And that just changes everything. But God gets it right all, time, all the time. And I hope that as we look at these prophecies that we will just marvel at God's ability to do this. Marvel at God's ability to move things in the midst of billions of people that are making their own decisions every day, living life, calling their own shots. Yet in the midst of that overarching is God's sovereign will and God's sovereign plan. And there are things that happen in the universe that have to happen. They're just going to happen. And Jesus Christ is one of those things. So we want to marvel at how reliable God is. And even if we think about this prophecy for Jesus, we can personalize it and realize that God is always working behind the scenes, even when we don't realize it. And there 
Uh, even the, the holy family, Jesus' parents, didn't always realize what God was doing in the fulfillment of prophecy. Maybe there's things in our lives right now and we're scratching our heads and we're thinking, I have no idea what you're doing, God. But we can rest assured that whatever it is, it's for our own well-being and it's for his glory. And one of the ways he gets glory is by intervening in our lives so that we worship and praise him. So this is just another reason for us to adore him. Another reason for our souls to boast in the Lord is that he can predict these things. And also to know that he is working so hard for us as well. It is said that Christ fulfilled over 300 prophecies. John MacArthur said 332. Josh McDowell said 333. I read somewhere else 352. I guess it just all depends on how you slice it and dice it. But the life of Christ in his short life, he fulfilled well over 300 very specific prophecies. What's the... Um, What's the likelihood of that happening? Well, somebody's got to really be able to rule the table in order for that to happen. There was a mathematician, last name of Stoner, don't remember the first name. And he decided, he was a piece of professor, he decided he was going to take a few of these prophecies and try to figure out what's the probability of, of these things actually happening that were predicted so far in advance in any kind of order in one person's life. Because these predictions could happen in a lot of different people's lives, but for all these things to happen in one person's life. So he was a mathematician, and he got his class to help him on this. And so he, he quickly found out that over 300 prophecies, it's just too big of a number. We can't figure that. Let's just work with eight. So he takes eight of the prophecies. Um, I don't remember all eight of them, but some of them were that his hands and feet would be pierced, uh, that he would be betrayed, and that... He would be betrayed over 30 pieces of silver, exactly, not 29 and a half, not copper, not 31, but 30 pieces of silver. And that was predicted way in advance. I mean, what's the likelihood of everything lining up like this? He started with eight, but then he cut it down to four because even eight was, he had a figure for it. And it was so many zeros, 10 to so many zeros. I honestly can't remember that. But just four prophecies. The likelihood of one person fulfilling those four prophecies was 10 to the power of 17. And uh, you guys don't have any idea how many that is, do you? That's a lot. So then what he did is he helps us out and he says, well, let me just give you an example of what that might look like in real life. And maybe some of you have heard this example. But if you take the state, the little teeny state of Texas, right? Teasing, Texas is huge. So it has its boundaries. You take that state. And you just dump quarters, silver dollars, quarters, whatever. Dump it on that state a, a couple feet high. So the whole state of Texas is covered with coins just a few feet high. You take one of those coins and you mark it special. All the other ones are identical. Just take one of those coins you mark it special. Say you take your El Marco and you put an X on it, whatever. Then you take a person and you blindfold them. And you have them walk wherever they want throughout the state of Texas Reach down and pick a coin and lift it up. What's the probability of that coin having that one mark on it? That's what it is. That's the probability of just four of these being um, fulfilled in one person's lifetime. We're, we're talking about something that's absolutely incredible here. And Jesus fulfilled 
well over 300 very detailed, specific prophecies. Now, what Matthew does for us is he, he, he spares us all those details. And he just, not randomly, but he specifically grabs four of these um, to reiterate Jesus as king. Let's read our text this morning. I'm going to read a few verses, say five, six, four, five, and six. And then we read it last week, so I won't, or the week before, so I won't read the rest of those. Then I'll go up to verse 12. But just to save a little bit of time, we are in chapter 2, the Gospel of Matthew, verse 4. Uh, Herod, by the way, he's assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born, and they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Far from you, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Skipping up to verse 12. Being warned in a dream, talking about the Magi, not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, here's new territory for us, verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. According to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that was what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. I don't know about you, but if I was Joseph, I think I'd be scared to fall asleep. Every time he falls asleep, he has this dream, and they're not always things that we would dream of happening to us. Well, this is the monarch of monarchs, the king of kings, the lord of lords. And he is fulfilling these very particular prophecies. Each one mentions a geographical location. We have Bethlehem, we have Egypt, we have Ramah. Um, we have Nazareth, and they're very significant places. And this fulfillment of prophecy is one of the greatest evidences 
of the fact that Christ really is God's son, that Christ really is the savior, the Messiah that God promised to the world, even as far back as Genesis. But as time went on, the promises got more and more specific. Uh, came from the line of Noah, one of Noah's three children, then it kind of narrows it down, then finally to, through Abraham, and then the tribe of Judah, and then the line of David. You know, he's going to be a descendant, it gets more and more specific, and now he's basically giving you an address where the Messiah is going to be born. That's how good God is in an age. And if you look at one of Daniel's prophecies, you can even ascertain that he would be anointed as king at about 27 A.D., which is when the Holy Spirit, when he was baptized under John and the Holy Spirit came and, and anointed him for the beginning of his ministry. So we have Bethlehem, first of all, in this prophecy in verses 4 through 6. And we've already been through this. The, the kings of the east, the Magi, they're kingmakers, very powerful and political people. They're looking for the king of the Jews. A Herod, who has been given that title by the Romans legally, and he also earned it through battle, doesn't appreciate the fact that they're looking for the king. He's supposed to be the king. And so he acts all interested. You know, uh, yes, kings, um, when you find him, just give me, a, give me a ring or text me and let me know where he is, because I really, I just have this urge to worship him too, along with you. But his urge really was to kill him. Because he was threatened by anything that threatened his control and the power that he had. He was very, very jealous for it. So he calls. He needs to know in order to find him, where is this guy? He calls in the Jewish leaders. Of course, they would know the answer to that. They know their Bibles front and back. And sure enough, he asks them and they just spout it right off. Micah 5, 2 says right here he would be born in Bethlehem of Judea. By the way, there were two Bethlehems, one in the north and one in the south. So God even says, nope, it's not the one up there. It's down here in the south. So they are no, by no means the least. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Matthew wants us to know this is one in the same. This is one in the same. Bethlehem. Bethlehem was smaller, believe it or not, than Burkeville. At the time of that prophecy, less than a thousand people. So if you can imagine any greatness, no offense, but any greatness coming from Burkeville, you know, there's just not even that many people there for greatness to come out of it. So that's kind of how far-fetched this is. Bethlehem is a very, very small place. Though I did hear, sadly, that Burkeville was kind of put on the map a little bit from a shooting very recently. Not a good way to be put there. But um, what's this prophecy all about? Well, you know, Micah was one of those prophets. He was contemporary with uh, Isaiah. It was before the deportation. Israel was not doing well. They were very spiritually sick. They were worshiping other gods. They were forsaking the true God. They were doing their own thing. And there were a lot of false prophets, if you remember, a lot of false leaders just telling the people what they wanted to hear, whatever they needed to do to stay in office. Sound like sound familiar? Whatever they need to do, whatever they need to say to stay in office, um, false prophets, false leaders. And and so Micah was was bringing them. To the forefront and letting them know, hey, God sees what you're doing and he's not real happy. The whole nation is in spiritual idolatry and you're going to be judged for it. So he starts coming down and thundering the judgments. You're going to lose your land's going to be waste. You're going to lose your positions that you're trying to hold on because you're so wicked and you won't repent. 
You're going to suffer for your sins. You're going to suffer for misleading God's people. And then chapter four, he starts talking about the future. And he and he begins to tell them, but there's going to be a day that comes when God's going to send this prophet, this ruler, this king, this teacher into your midst. And he's going to only speak truth. No lies. No manipulations. He doesn't have to do that. He's just going to speak truth. He's going to lead you rightly. It's going to be peace. There's going to be righteousness. You can believe every word he says. And he's going to be a great leader. He's got vision. He's got purpose. And he's telling them that the day will come when God will send that kind of ruler into their midst. And I think even today, what's one of our biggest problems as a nation? I mean... Politics is just seems to be getting worse and worse. And one of the reasons that we are where we are today, there's this great mistrust. Look at the election that's coming up. It's, it's almost getting to the point where uh, we don't even trust anybody. And it's so bad that sometimes you don't even have a good selection. And there's an unrest. And one of the things that we've learned out of this current election is that people don't trust their leaders anymore. They've gained these kind of reputations. And it's very, very sad. But can you imagine the promise that one day, just, I don't know, personalize it. Just say one day God said to America, I'm going to send you this tremendous ruler. The, the laws will be just. It will be to prosper you. Wouldn't that just give you hope? Man, that's what we all long for, isn't it? Well, God's going to send what the world longs for, a king that rules in righteousness. And what Micah then says in chapter 5 is, and he's go, let me tell you where he's going to be born. He's going to be born in little obscure Bethlehem. That's where this great, great king is going to come from. That's the place. And Matthew's saying, that's the place. And this is the king. This is the baby. This is the promised Messiah ruler that God is sending. And so he was born in Bethlehem. Not to spend a lot of time on that, but how did they even get to Bethlehem? Mary and Joseph were in Nazareth. How did they just happen to be in Bethlehem when it was time for her? You know, you only, you only have a small window of opportunity to have the baby for the most part. How did they happen to be in Bethlehem when they were from Nazareth? Well, the Roman law about taxation, where you had to go to your original state of birth if you were head of a household... Joseph was originally from Bethlehem, so he had to travel there, wasn't planning on it, wasn't in their plans. Travel there for the census because of Roman law. See how God works history? He used that so that it just so happened, if you will, that Jesus would be born in little obscure Bethlehem. There's, there's so much that has to take place for this. So that's prophecy number one. And prophecy number two is Egypt. We find that in 13 through 15. When they departed, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And he said, rise and take the child and his mother. By the way, the child and his mother, that's how Jesus is identified in his uh, youth. It's always the child first and then his mother. It doesn't say, take your son. Um, he says, the child and his mother. Flee. To Egypt and remain there till I tell you. How would you like God to tell you that? Here's your orders. I want you to move here and just stay there. 
How long? Until I tell you to move. Or I want you to do this job or, I, you know, what, whatever it is. Fortunately, it wasn't too long. He rose, he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill, Matthew tells us, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. So Mary and Joseph, they're in a house now when the Magi come to visit them. They're no longer in the stable. So Jesus is at least a few months old, if not uh, older, maybe a toddler, still an infant, something like that. And maybe when the Magi left, I'm sure it was probably kind of awkward for them to entertain these very, very wealthy, powerful people. I mean, this is just Joseph and Mary, a carpenter, and they're a poor family. The only thing that they're known for really is their righteousness, their good reputations. And here these wealthy people come in. They're giving him gold and frankincense and myrrh. Sure, that was awkward for him, but also sweet. Sweet in the sense that they had been called to this task that is very unusual, unnatural. Virgin will give birth and it's going to be God's son and you're the parents. And so it was probably good for them to have this divine appointment, of you will, as just confirmation. Yeah, this really is happening. It's not a dream, one of Joseph's dreams. This is real life. And the Magi confirmed that. And maybe after they left, they thought, maybe now things will settle down and we can just be a family. And Joseph apparently sleeps a lot or something. I don't know. But he falls asleep and he has one of those dreams, not a regular dream. It's not one of those dreams where you weren't sure if you were dreaming or not. There's, there's speculation. This is some kind of biblical dream where it's definitive. You know That God has spoken just like Peter had the same dream on the rooftop about what's clean and what's unclean. There's no doubt about it. It's not like, well, I ate tacos last night or too many beans and I had this crazy dream. It's just this is something from God. And he had that kind of dream. And it is to flee because Jesus's life is in danger. Herod aims to kill the baby. We all know that Herod is a maniac. Killed his sons. A few of his sons killed one of his wives, killed that wife's mother, killed innocent people. And now he wants to kill this threat of a king, this competition, Jesus. So from a human perspective, he is in great danger. Herod's got an army. He's got the power. Nothing, there's nothing there to stop him. Of course, except the protective hand of God. And so God sends a dream. Just like the Magi, they were also treated to a dream Don't go and tell Herod, just go different way. And so that's what they did. God's protection. We get the impression that Joseph acted immediately. Maybe even that very night, he just stole away through the night. He didn't want people to know where he was going. Maybe because Herod might come and question him. Where did they go? We've got to find them. Did you see him? Maybe they wanted witnesses. We don't know, but he went quickly. Didn't take him any uh, time. Took up what belongings he had. And he made the trip down South. The word departed there in the Greek actually means flee from danger. And it's like Matthew 412. When Jesus heard John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. In other words, you know, your life's in trouble. You need to get. And that's the word. The word flee. There's the word that we use for fugitive. So Jesus, in a sense, the holy family's on the run, not because they've done anything wrong, but because Herod is a maniac. God sends them to Egypt. I first read that and I think, what are you thinking? How how could that be good? Egypt, 
And we're used to the Old Testament teachings about Egypt. You don't want to go to Egypt. That's a place where God already delivered you from. That's where they, they enslave you. It's where they kill babies. It's a terrible place. They chase you down in Pharaoh's army. And why would God send Jesus to Egypt as a place to protect them when it's so dangerous? Well, things have changed since the Old Testament times through the intertestament period. And actually, Egypt wasn't so dangerous anymore. As a matter of fact, it had become, in particular, the city of Alexandria, under the ruler Alexander the Great. It was now actually a safe haven for Jewish people. Ever since the Maccabean period, where there, there was a revolt. He sanctioned that as a place for Jews to come. And so it was a very, very popular, populated place. One historian said there were about a million Jews living there in the days of Jesus. And they had their own temple for worship. They made a living there. They just were living their lives there. Very, very comfortable, very peaceful, very safe. And so it really is a safe place for Joseph to take his family. He could get work there and they could live until he received word. It was a long trip, if you can imagine, if you've had young children before Jesus, maybe a few months old, six months, whatever, 75 miles to the border. And then about another hundred miles to Alexander. And they did it the human way. God didn't zap them. And they didn't have a dream and wake up there. Uh, God could do that. But they had to hoof it one step at a time. Or ride the mule or the donkey, however they got there, the old-fashioned way. That's what they did. Well, what did they do when they were down in Egypt for those few years, if it was that many? Well, what we know from Scripture, everything we know... All the details are right there in verse 13. That's it. It's all that Scripture informs us about. But if you want to have fun and see human inclinations, Google it. What did Jesus do in Egypt? And you'll get all kinds of stories. Uh, There's even a false gospel written that tells us what Jesus did in Egypt. The gospel of the infancy of our Lord, it's called. Uh, And it says things like... um, Let's see. One of the things he did as a toddler, wherever he went, false idols would just fall apart if he walked by them. In Egypt, they just fall all to pieces. And then there was an Egyptian priest that had a three-year-old son, I believe, that was demon-possessed. And Jesus took a piece of his swaddling cloth and put it on his head, and he was delivered from... uh, that So just things like that, very interesting, and I'm sure some people are very convinced. Some say that he went there because that's where all the sorcery took place, and he went there for his to get his magic training so he could come back to Jerusalem, and he wouldn't know how to do all these miracles and tricks and so forth. It's just uh, people have fun with it, stuff like that. But what do we know for sure? Well, you just read it. We don't know other than that. Matthew's not... Focused on the details. That's not the point. He's, his point is prophecy. His point is that he went there because he needed to fulfill this prophecy. And Matthew actually, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling us that's why it happened. They didn't know that that was a prophecy that needed to be fulfilled at that point. It was kind of obscure. But he makes the connection there. Fitting description of the Messiah. And he's there until 
the death of Herod, which we believe is about 4 B.C., so he wasn't there that long. Joseph has another one of those dreams. It's safe to bring him back. He was going back to Jerusalem, but not quite that safe because of Archelaus, so he wound up going to Nazareth. So God is verifying credentials of the Messiah through these prophecies. Out of Egypt, I called my son. We know that, well, the original scriptures, Hosea 11, 1. And here's what he said. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. So that the Jews would understand this as the people of God, Israel. And God, as we know, he he delivered them out of Egypt. It was like they were his firstborn. He just chose them through Abraham, of course, and the promise of descendants. Here's the promised descendants. They have God's favor. He loves them. They're his firstborn. He didn't call any other nation. Just them. And so they would see that as what had already taken place in history. The son is Israel. But in this text, the son is Christ. Israel is a type. A type in the Bible is like a nonverbal indication of what is to come. It's a picture of Christ without actually saying it. And Matthew makes that connection. It's, it's God saying, I just, Israel was my firstborn and I called him out of love. Christ is my firstborn and I call him out of Egypt in complete love. The nonverbal prediction. The... Um, Matter of fact, we don't know all the nonverbal predictions until the New Testament tells us. Just like when Jesus said about Jonah. Now, when Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, do you think he knew that he was being a picture of Christ? And when he was spit out, like, glad that's over. Now you got your picture, Christ. And I want, I mean, God, now you can get on with your, I can get on with my life. But Jesus makes reference. That actually. That little happening with Jonah was a picture of what's going to happen to me in death. I go into the grave. I go into the belly of the ground. There are types there. So the past weaves a picture of the present. And everything points to the king. All scripture points to Christ. Incredible thing. Hosea. He was that unfortunate prophet that married a woman that... Uh, liked to cheat, to put it mildly, eventually became a uh, prostitute and became a sex slave, if you will. Um, Hosea loved her. He kept going back, heartbroken, as you can imagine, going back. And he would he got to the point where he'd fetch her. And then he even had to buy her back when she became a slave. Puts his money there, buys her back, just keeps bringing her home, keeps showing her love. And God uses that. As a picture now, you know how I feel with my people Israel. Uh, they're, they're prostitutes chasing after every other God instead of me. And yet my steadfast love, like we sang about this morning, never leaves, never forsakes. Steadfast love. God keeps loving. Don't deserve it. Redeems them. Stays with them. It's an emphasis of incredible love. John MacArthur says the message of Hosea was long forgotten. The time of degeneration went on even to Jesus' day. The days of Israel's whoredom and prostitution were still going on. But finally the prophecy of Hosea came back like a bolt of lightning out of the sky. 
They hear these words again and it's applied to something different. Out of Egypt have I called my son. As of old, God loved Israel when a child and brought him out of Egypt. So now he lo- his love centers on the Messiah. He brings him out of Egypt. In fact, the whole deliverance out of Egypt is a prototype for salvation. In the New Testament. An undeserving people. God keeps his promise to. God sets his love on his people. Perhaps you've experienced that. And you realize, you know, I have I failed God many times and yet he just keeps pursuing and he keeps coming and he keeps loving. That's the God we serve. God has a plan and a future. He's a God that redeems. He's a God that calls us to worship him, but he rules over us righteously. He does a better job at running our lives if we will allow him than we would do ourselves. Can you think back to a decision that you would have made except God intervened? Or maybe you did and you suffered for it, but God intervened. And he just wants to offer his kingship. It's, 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 righteous, it's righteous, it's good, it's wholesome. That's what he wants for us. Doesn't mean that it's all feel good. There are hard times, but it always leads to things that are good. So in every chapter, Matthew's going to cry out 28 chapters, Jesus is king. Is he your king? That's the question we want to answer this morning. He deserves our obedience. He deserves our worship. He longs for it. Is Jesus our king? We just saw two. We'll see two more prophecies. We want to continue to marvel at how God plans these things. So what's the purpose? Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is the king so that we will worship him as the rightful king. He deserves to be ruler of our hearts, not just the universe. May God's power and may this we're here hearing this declarations from God because God wants us to hear this. Maybe we're not saved. Maybe we haven't bowed the knee. God wants us to hear this morning. Jesus is king. Will you bow the knee to the rightful king and give your life? He is worthy of it. Maybe we've already done that. And there are areas of our lives, as we've said before, ah, he's king, but not of this area, not of this part. I'm not giving him that. We don't trust him if that's the case. And he's worthy of our trust. He will not lead us astray. He is the ruler that God sent. He can be trusted. With all things. Let him call us out of Egypt. Call us out of bondage. So the birth of Bethlehem and the exodus from Egypt. Bless the Lord and may God bless the preaching of his word this morning.